This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with youth phase coach at Crystal Palace, Josh Bednash. He discusses his performance analysis work that he promotes on social media, the process he goes through in order to complete this work and how it benefits the players he works with, and how the London cage culture has helped Crystal Palace produce players that are very strong in 1v1s. I hope you enjoy. Josh, first of all, appreciate you jumping on. Um, did you have a nice break over the festive periods and kind of relax from what's been a crazy 2020? Yeah, hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on, firstly. I um, really appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, yeah, like we spoke about just briefly off off camera, it was nice just to sign of recharge the batteries and recuperate and, and watch uh, tons of football over the Christmas period. But yeah, although we're living in, in difficult times, it's very nice to, to relax and recharge like yourself, I imagine. Yeah, 100%. Uh, got tested positive for COVID, so I've been isolated. So this is my <laughs> last day, which hasn't been ideal, but but for that, we're all good. Um, so I came across your work kind of on, on social media and the thing that struck out to me mainly was kind of the analysis side that you're doing, which has been really good. So um, do you want to talk through kind of what your roles are at the moment, what, what jobs you're doing, and I guess what led you down the route of analysing kind of as in-depth as you are? Yeah, so um, so my, my job, I work at Crystal Palace with the under-15s. I'm the assistant coach um, there to, to Mark Newson, who's the lead coach ahead of phase. Um, uh, I've worked with the 14s uh, prior to that. Um, I'm working with the 15s now. And um, I'm, I also work full-time in a, in, a, in a school as a PE teacher. So, um, so, so doing both at the minute. Um, in terms of the analysis work, um, it's more just a... Um, a pastime, I think, um, when I'm not, not on the grass or not planning sessions or analysing sessions. Um, I like to, as I'm sure all coaches do, watch football and, and clip things out that I think are relevant to maybe things you've spoken about um, with the players in the week or maybe our, our topic that week or or that, that session. Um, in terms of, of what I've done of analysis work prior, um, currently I'm just trying to as, as we're all watching tons of football right now and sitting on our phones quite a lot, just trying to um, find something interesting in the game, clip it out, post it on Twitter and see see kind of what people think about it and get some conversation going. Um, perhaps can can share it amongst the coaches and get some conversation going there and maybe even share it with the players, which is which is always a benefit. Um, prior, prior to, well, not prior, but alongside coaching, I was doing some um, analysis work for... Uh, Spiel Levagerum. I'm not sure if I said it correctly right, but it's a German uh, tactics blog um, with some really great writers on there who who um, welcomed me on, and I did a few pieces for them. Um, the last thing I did, I think, was was about a year or so ago. Uh, but yeah, it's really great We're doing some work for them, and that, that's more of an in-depth, maybe match analysis or player analysis or or whatever it might be, team analysis. I was doing a few match analyses, so so watching a game, finding a few themes. Um, how maybe how one team's played, maybe how both teams played, maybe how one team's countered another way a team's playing, um, and then clipping out a few a few sections, and then trying to and then they you create create sort of what they call graphs on a on like a tactics board online, and then post that up on the on the website with different dynamics and what's going on, on the pitch. So that was always that was always a good opportunity to do some analysis and do some watching games in a bit more detail, 
and just spending time, you know, pausing, rewinding, pausing, rewinding, and clipping things out. And, and yeah, I just, to be honest with you, I, I enjoy doing it. I like doing it. I like, I like uh, looking at the little details tactically, technically, and, and, uh, and trying to learn as much as I can really. I, we all haven't got the answers and definitely, definitely I'm, I'm a long way from that. So just, it's good just to, um, to try and learn and get, get some opinions and bounce off people like yourself and, and try and improve yourself and, and the players you work with really. I think <clears throat> we'll come back to the players you work with because I think it'd be interesting to hear kind of what uh, you guys do at Palace because obviously you've been very, very successful in terms of getting players through the ranks. And I know seeing online, you've mentioned a little bit about moves that you do that you can see from Eze and stuff at the, the top end, even though he didn't come through your academy. You can see similarities there. Um, <clears throat> on the analysis stuff, obviously we, we, we spoke before and you mentioned you're an Arsenal fan, which... Wasn't too pleased about being a Spurs fan, but um, one of the things that I've is particularly kind of stood out to me was the work you've done around kind of assessing, I guess, Arteta's reign to a certain degree. And you, you mentioned before about the style and structure he's trying to play and difficulties he's having. Do you want to talk through kind of what, what you've seen, I guess, as a fan, but then also on an analytical level as well? Yeah, I mean, again, I have to caveat all of this with. I could be completely wrong. I could be totally wrong. This could be, it could be instructions from the players or from the coach or from the coaching team, which have completely eluded me, um, as as we all are when we're just analysing. But having having looking at, at how Arsenal are playing at the moment, I think it's fascinating in terms of the contradiction of how Man City play and the comparisons between how Man City play. Having worked under Guardiola, Arteta, you'd assume. Me, me as much as anyone else is trying to go down more of a positional positional play model in the sense of as, as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware but having having certain players in certain areas of the pitch based on where the ball is based on where the opposition is and maximizing the spaces in between in between the opposition lines and as Guardiola said in the interview of the day attacking and running just at the right time after I think he said a billion passes I think is exaggerating but after a billion passes when do you then penetrate there's tons of things in there that you need to to be able to have in order to, for that to work, namely the timing of, of your movement, body shapes receiving between the lines, technique to be able to pass in between the lines, the tactical understanding to be able to move into different spaces based on where the ball is. But there's also so much there psychologically in terms of having the confidence, bravery, the understanding, the patience to be able to do that. I think looking at, again, this is based on an assumption that Arteta is trying to follow positional model which he did under Guardiola and now with Juan Melilo working under Guardiola who was his mentor many years ago there's a there's a there's a, there's a, there's a lineage there of coaches who are working on that model and it, it seems as if the Arsenal players at the minute are just really struggling to execute what they are potentially being asked to do there could be loads of factors towards um, to do with that I'd imagine it's probably really really difficult to come into a club and completely alter the culture and the change and a change of playing style in a year and as you've seen with Southampton and even Guardiola's first season and loads of different examples that takes a long time to be able to implement that um there's all there's I think there's a few things you when you look at it and you think he's asking the players to do xyz but it's not perhaps clicking correctly at the moment so one example would be um at Man City and at Bayern Munich, having a fullback coming inside, which I'm sure, again, a lot of your listeners are aware of, 
Philip Lahm playing inside? When does he play inside? When does he move inside? When does he move outside? Um, is it is it just to progress the ball? Is it to, to stop the other team counter-attacking? I think you see Arsenal doing that. So you see Bellerin going inside last night or maybe Maitland-Niles going inside at times and Saka, and, and, um, and Saka going wide from inside right position. But you look at it and you think the body shape in this position or their timing of when they've gone in there or their distance from the ball or their angle from the ball is not quite right in that second you need it to be right in order to progress the ball forward and then they have to go backwards sideways and then end up kicking it long. So it's just those little tiny details which I'd imagine which I'd imagine that they're really trying to focus and hone in on. You watch right now and you think it's not quite there. But again, this is just a, a, a bystander's perspective. And I can imagine the job must be incredibly, incredibly difficult to do so. Um, but it's, I think it's interesting how he's going to follow this positional game um, and, and make a team that plays as fluidly as Guardiola's team or other positional teams play. Um, with is he, is he going to use these players? Is he going to wait and try and give them more opportunities to practice this game? Is he going to buy new players? How's it going to work? But um, I think it's an exciting time. I think it's an interesting time. So, so yeah, I think the, in terms of the 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 little details you speaking about on Twitter, I just think it's fascinating how the wrong body shape at the wrong second or the wrong positioning in between the lines at the wrong second can destroy a whole move from progressing. I think that's what one of the fantastic things about Phil Foden against Arsenal the other week, his ability to stand in between the lines at just the right time when the ball is free to be able to pass to him and in the right body shape and scanning numerous times before getting the ball allows them to turn and then and then you can be you, you've got so many options from there once you're turning in between the lines. But but yeah, I think it's very interesting. Again, must must be a very very difficult job and and one I can only look at in in, in admiration for for attempting, but. But yeah, one thing you, you mentioned um, online and you, you discussed was kind of the role of El Neni recently, who's kind of playing that traditional four, if you like, and probably the, the Fernandinho is it's kind of better known in the, these parts in terms of hmm. getting on the ball. Um, and one of the things you're talking about kind of when you're progressing the ball was his body shape in order to receive. Um, which was quite square on with Leno at the time. Do you just want to talk through some of the things you saw regarding kind of his body shape and why that then proved to be difficult when he was looking to progress or why it was hard for uh, Arsenal to move the ball forward and allowed kind of a, a good press mm. into deeper areas? Well, I, think there was, I think there was two or three different situations that were common. I think the first situation that's common would be you're building up, can call it build up phase one when you're starting from a goal kick or a dead ball or the ball goes back to the goalkeeper. Once the pass went to the centre-back, so the right back or the right centre-back or the left centre-back, the timing then at which the holding midfielder theoretically needs to move either deeper than the player who's pressing the ball. Imagine you've now got a player pressing down the line of the ball or at an, or at, at an angle to curve their run and force the play somewhere. This player now can't see you because you're behind them. But they can block you with what's that, what some people call their cover shadow. So like a, the space behind them, which blocks you getting the ball. So the most important thing we say to our players is see the ball. So if you can't see the ball, if you can see the player in front of you back, then you can't get the ball. So we say see the ball, move into position where you can see the ball just as they look up. So that you basically have two options. You either 
you either move to the right or to the left. If, if the player is pressing down down the down the ball, say the left centre back has the ball, getting pressed by maybe a nine or or, in, or a right winger, you then have to move to the left or to the right. And then it seemed in, the, in a lot of the clips was was jogging at the same speed and at the same um, position as the player pressing. So it was down his back. So when the left centre back looks up in that split second, they can't see you. And therefore they have to either go to another option or kick or kick it long. And then you lose control of, of possession. So I think that's what that'd be one picture and that'd be one situation where we'd say you either have to stop here and move to the left, or you've got to speed up your movement and move to the right. But you've got to run at a different pace and a different speed and a different angle to the player in front of you, or you can't receive the ball. Ideally, you want to receive the ball on your back foot to go forward if you've got time and space, if you've got space to go into. So Whichever of those two options allow you to do that, that's the probably that's probably the better option. Um, I think the other picture would, would be would be when the ball was central with Leno and Elneny is going down straight down the line of the ball. And in fact, someone responded to me on Twitter and made a good point, which was there's a few clips where Arsenal have ended up scoring from where it's gone into that central player. They've been facing the goalkeeper and then bounced it out to the centre back, inviting pressure from behind, bounced it out to the centre back and then progressed from there. Which, like I said, a caveat at the beginning when I was talking, I could, I could be completely wrong. This could be completely what they want to do. Like they could be being asked to do this. Um, and that was a great point someone made to me. What I responded as was, that's a really good thing to do. I think if you if you time your movement to invite the pressure from behind you, so as the ball comes to you, the player from behind you is pressing at the same time because your timing of the run is so. So then you can bounce it out to the centre-back and now the player who's on your back has theoretically been eliminated if you pass past them. Um, what was happening in the clips was his timing was too early. So he was running towards Leno. The player behind him was still 10 metres from, from pressing him. In which case, he probably would have been allowed to, would have been able to turn there and then move forward rather than having to be so square on and then not have an option to do that. Um, so, so in terms of, I think, I think actually like we said earlier, whether it's probably better to use these bits and these clips to, help your own players and help players that you know who you've given an instruction to because you can say this is happening here this is what what i think you could do in this situation what do you think you could do in the situation blah 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 but it's maybe more difficult to go this is what's happening here and this is what he should have done because like i said i don't know what i don't know what he's been told to do he could have been told something completely different he could have been told not to, he could have been told to move there and not get the ball this is a decoy we, we don't know but so therefore, maybe maybe it's better to analyze a team in light of the message you want to give to your own players, or to just to, to, or even to advise your own learning. But understand there are so many grey areas with it. Um, those are probably the two main pictures. I think the third picture would probably be when the ball would be on the, on the in the fullback area. What it, what is Elneny or the holding player doing there in order to allow the play to come back into the middle and go out the other side? Are they are they deep enough from the ball to receive one pass on their back foot and go forward? Um, a player who's brilliant in that is Yuri Tielemans, who's fantastic at doing that. And I've seen a few clips very recently. And he, he's excellent at that, that tiny split-second movement just to backpedal or or sidestep two, three yards deeper than the ball to be able to go back foot and then forward again. Changes so much. If you don't, if you don't do that in that second, then your team are going to have to either maybe kick it long, which you might want to do. But if, you, if you're a team that is interested in keeping the ball having control over possession, that's probably not something you do want to do. Um, 
I think that's so, an so, yeah. one because um, I think I've seen some of the clips you're on about and I also watched the game. So one of them, a lot of them come from the Tottenham game. Um, obviously Tottenham are in a low block as they are at the moment, uh, like it or loathe it. He plays a lateral pass um, kind of out to the fullback, which then makes his centre midfielder drop in to screen the front players or the, you know, the half space. And it literally, as soon as he plays that lateral run, he knows that, I think it was Sissoko at the time, going to drop. Then he drops and all of a sudden he's gone from being pressured to having mm, a mm, seven-yard gap, mm. which then allows him to receive and go forward again. And I thought it was a great illustration of you, you talk with players about movement after you've played. Mm. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a 10, 20-yard sprint. Sometimes it can just be an intelligent pass wide and then a three or four-yard back pedal off standing still or moving away from play and all of a sudden you've created a massive bit of space for yourself to then be able to mm. get on the ball and then play again yeah definitely I think I think one of the I think something we are told as youngsters and we hear all often as young players I think would be um, pass and move or pass and follow but I think as I've, I've definitely been around um, coaches um, at, at, in the academy level and have, have made me think of it in a different light which is if you pass and move you might be passing and moving and actually closing down your angle or closing down your teammates angle so I think some of the coaches I've been speaking to at Palace and and uh, and also I mean some things I've been reading online would, would kind of go along a different route which might be which rather than pass and move play and stay might be a better a better way of, of speaking about it in certain phases, of course, you don't to stay the whole time and you're never going to be able to threaten with runs in behind. But like in, in the phase you're speaking about there, building up, if you play and then stay at this, in the angle you are, but move subtly side to side and try, try and receive on a different foot or go in a different angle, you're, then, you're going to invite pressure and you're going to invite pressure from a different player and then you can find the gap. Um, if you pass and then move elsewhere, not only are you then going to be in different position to receive the ball in, but you might be inviting their players into a crowded area and not be able to break through with a good body shape. Um, I think a lot of those, a lot of rondo drills, so um, just just a standard rondo, but loads of variations to it. Obviously, you've got play, maybe four players on the outside, maybe more, maybe two in the middle, maybe one um, joker or attacking player or 10 or whatever you want to call it in the middle. And those games are all based around playing and moving two yards one side, two yards the other side to create a better supporting angle to either bounce in a few times, then break a line or open up and receive and play the other side. And so much of those little rondo games, you can get out so many outcomes that you then use in, in, in a 11 v 11. Um, but that might be quite a good way of, of, of speaking about it. And then obviously when you get into maybe finishing phase, you're then making more runs in behind and you're threatening in behind a bit more. Um, hmm. So do you um, like to kind of watch Arsenal because it's a happy, happy thing you you support them and then you can analyse them as you go along or are there particular teams you like to analyse and watch? Yeah, to be honest with you, I um, I probably went through quite a big... Fe- I'm, as you know, working in football, you don't support a team as you support a team when you're at school. It's, it's just not possible because if you've got a game that clashes with the game of your team, you're not going to go, oh, sorry, 
sorry to your boss, I can't come to work today because Arsenal playing Burnley at three o'clock. That's you can't really do that. And therefore, I think you lose you lose your affinity somewhat with the team you're supporting, and you look at you watch football in a more analytical way. Um, so there was a long period of time where a lot of Arsenal games I wouldn't watch because maybe playing fantastic stuff or having had really great players, but just in my opinion, I felt that they that I wasn't necessarily um, seeing many cons- consistent themes that you can kind of uh, you can kind of draw from regularly, and you can go, okay, they're doing this and they've done this again, and and, and then maybe they may be what you call a structured team, and therefore I can I can uh, see patterns emerging. Have you got uh, not examples of that. Of, of teams that don't do that. Of a like, situation where you saw where it was clear that, you know, they could have done the same pattern or they could have pressed in the same way, but it was clear when, whilst you're watching it that, that that wasn't the case and it was kind of freelancing to a degree. Well, I think... Again, I don't want to turn this into an Arsenal podcast for your listeners who hate Arsenal, but um, I think that a lot of the times in which Arsenal would really... Um, do well against teams at home, um, so-called teams that weren't perhaps in the top six at home uh, and win comfortably 4-5-0. And then when you, they played against uh, Chelsea under Mourinho or or, te- or or teams that were slightly more, you know, we're going to defend in X way, maybe like you said in the deep block, can you beat us? Which takes probably a bit more of a a bit more of, a, of an approach of these are going to be the spaces at these exact moments and this is what we need to capitalise on. They they struggled a bit more. Um, I think now, although Arsenal are doing a lot worse in the league, it's, I think it's interesting to see to see how everything fits together and starting to fit together. Um, to answer your earlier question, yeah, I do, I do, again, I don't think that Playing a certain way is necessarily better than playing another way, but just in terms of of can you see, can you, especially when I was doing a bit of work for for a bit of tactics writing, and you want to maybe look at a team that, okay, can I can I write something about this team? Are there themes emerging here that I can uh, that I can analyze on a regular basis? I think that is interesting. There was a lot. There was teams. There's 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 been teams that are a bit more, a bit able to analyze it a bit better. Leeds under BLC when they're in the championship, obviously. Um, I think Napoli under under Sari a few years ago were really interesting to watch. Um, even I think Barcelona under Kike Setien were really quite, didn't do very well, but were interesting to watch how because he's a, he's quite a positional play coach and how his methods how they how they didn't work, which I think is also fascinating, and what 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 the players weren't able to do perhaps due to the way they've been asked to play. Um, was interesting, yeah. I think, like I said, when there's a theme and you can see a clear style of play, it is, I think it maybe it, it, for me anyway, it, it tends to be slightly more captivating to watch regularly because you can kind of make connections week to week. What are your your thoughts on Bielsa? Because I I've tried to, well, I've made a conscious effort to watch pretty much all of their games this year. Um, one because you hear the style of football they play and every game that I've watched has been exciting so it makes me want to come back for more. But the other is because, you know, everyone attributes 
well, a lot of the top managers attribute their work to him and what they learned from him. Um, and obviously, yeah, I've been quite impressed by it. So when, when you've analysed, you've looked at them, is there any particular themes beyond them just running at crazy distances that has really stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's loads. I think, I think, I think the running is obviously is, is an important thing. I think we need to be a bit careful with how we look at running because I think running 15 kilometers in the game doesn't necessarily mean it's been it's useful running. I think as a, as players, I mean, you could if you if you tally up distance covered and and maybe some more qualitative and quantitative measures that you can measure how a player's done. I think it can be very useful um, addition, but I don't think necessarily just running a lot is a is a marker of why a team are doing well. Again, I've looked I've looked at some that of the way like there's a book there's a really good book by uh, Jed Davis. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, who wrote a book about Bielsa. I think it was about five years ago. Um, and it's a really interesting book and it speaks about uh, kind of his own coaching journey and how he's been kind of obsessed with Bielsa for years and looked at Bielsa's methods and tried to weave them into his own coaching journey, coaching a few teams and uh, a university in England. And I think he worked out in Canada. Um, and it's a really interesting book. And so I, I read that about five or six, five, about five, five years ago, four or five years ago. And uh, I think at that time he was working for Marseille I might be wrong on that. Happy to be corrected on that. But I think he was working for Marseille at the time. And it was just fascinating in terms of um, the different the different structures in possession, out of possession, the the number, the, the, the detail at which he looks at technique. So I think, again, I could be wrong on this, but I think Bielsa says there are 28 ways of passing a ball, something along those lines. And then he also speaks about there's, there's an extra number of ways you can run in behind, there's X number of ways you can receive. I think a lot of the work I've seen from little clips of Twitter, again, it could, it, it's, it's probably less than a percent of what he actually does, but a lot of the little clips I've seen have been of, of really detailed kind of just technical moving movement patterns or or hammering in the same um, slight movement to maybe move one way, then move the other so to receive at the exact right timing. So I think when you watch Bielsa team, the reason it looks so in sync and when they are playing well it's like it's one organism, one one machine all working together. I think seems to be because a lot of the work they do, a lot of they do a lot of technical work, and I've seen a lot of clips of of uh, move, timing of movements or, or receiving receiving patterns or or really really specific detail broken down and repeated loads and loads of times. And then also you've got the intensity there. You've obviously got the incredible analytical level where they're watching hundreds of games a season. Um, you've got uh, you've got the, the the tactical detail. So a lot of people tweeting the other day about playing um, the game the other day. I forget it was the game before the West Brom game. Play three 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 one three, um, which is obviously a variety of different formations. But um, I think he's played that before Marseille and Bilbao. So it's there's just loads. There's loads and loads there. Um, and yeah, I think it's you've also got his his his. Uh, intense intensity and and uh his mannerisms which are really interesting so it's a fascinating concoction i hope really do how they do well and the way he's improved certain players is just remarkable like luke ailing he's turned into a fantastic fullback really 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 good player um which is which is obviously fascinating to watch 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen little bits on, again on on uh, social media, also on YouTube, where I've kind of gone searching for stuff. And I agree with you. From what I've seen, and again, I'd be happy to be corrected from this. It seems like he does a lot of um, kind of functional twos and threes practices where they're really honing in those skills mm. so that the players have an opportunity to practice the things they're going to be doing in a game. So it's not kind mm. of generic, do a rondo, do a, you know, attack versus defence, do a game, gone. It seemed like there was real intensity and position-specific and individual-specific work going, this is what I'm going to be asking you to do on a game day. So this is what we're going to practice. And then we're going to work on this type of pass and this movement and you're going to do it at a tempo, um, which I think is really interesting. And the, the way I liken it, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle because when he was doing it with Argentina from some of the research I've done, my understanding, he would have them come in at different times of the day and they'd all do different works. And so he'd have the defenders for 45 minutes, then your wing-backs for 45 minutes and midfielders. But it all fits together although they weren't all in at the same time, they were all doing stuff that would lead on to the next person. So then all of a sudden mm. got a picture long-term, um, which I think is really interesting. One thing that I, I, is kind of, again, and this can link back to the El Nenny stuff, that's really kind of blown me away to a certain degree is the way that they work in midfield. And when you talk about um, being able to move so the ball can be you, the way that they rotate or the way that, you know, they go 1v1 with people and kind of leave balls into spaces for someone mm. to right and all that type of stuff, I, I think has been really interesting. And it's really interesting to see how teams counteract it. I look at United the other day when they played them. It seems like they almost tried to match them up and put some physically very capable players in there to try and turn it into, you know, almost a, a 1v1 battle mm. with how many getting through lines. Um yeah, I think that that midfield area for me has been really interesting. And then also the way that they use the fullbacks where they slide the ball forward into maybe a traditional eight or ten and then run inside off the line mm. where Kevin Phillips has vacated the central areas. I think that mm. that's really interesting in terms of them being able to penetrate in that that area as well. The United game was really interesting. I thought it could be a blueprint of how to play against Leeds this season because... If they because because Leeds are so man oriented out of possession and they're they're really man for man, um, then you, theoretically, once you if if the deepest midfielder can play and then spin off and then join the attack past the the midfield line, then because they've maybe moved made a blindside movement past a player that's pressing them, then they can be the player that starts the attack. And then you saw Matonome score two, um, Fred I think set out two. And you're thinking this really could be a blueprint how to play against Leeds because, again, I'm sure they would have addressed this in in, in pre, um, after the game. But like I said, if you're if you're the deepest player and you're the man oriented on your team, and you can at the same time as the ball's moving make a blindsided movement behind them, then they go unless they turn around and just follow you like American football, which is just not they're, they're going to be attracted to the ball to some extent then you might be able to then join the attack from a set from one of the wide positions or even from the nine like a, um, as a third man. So, and then they, they scored a few goals from that. And I was looking at thinking this, this really could be a, could be a, something that other teams follow here, but yeah, it was really interesting. It was a really interesting game. I also think it's interesting. Like all you need is someone to fall asleep for 
Yeah. Two seconds, all of a sudden he's got a five, ten yard head start on you. Mm. That then becomes an issue because you've got an overload in those central mm. areas. So I think I think that was particular particularly interesting. Um, linking back to some of the other analytical stuff that you've done, one one bit of what I really liked was the showing inside from counter attacks with the two centre backs. Mm. Mm. Um, can you just just talk through kind of the principles behind that and, and what you'd seen regarding that area? Yeah, I think this is probably this is probably be quite a controversial one in the sense that. Um, I was, it, it's kept, I mean, it came up speaking to someone a few years ago and um, and I've kind of just looked at it ever since. And again, I don't think there's a right or wrong in the situation, but it's something that you're starting to see a bit more now. Um, I've seen Liverpool, Arsenal do it this season. Leicester did it this season and last season. I've had a few debates with people. Is it just the natural response to defending a counter-attack? Is it coached? Does it work? Does it not work? Is it perfect? Of course, it's not perfect. I don't think anything is perfect, but does it minimise risk is, I think, what we're looking at here. If you're defending a counter-attack, how do you minimise risk? Um, and how do you... There's going to be always going to be a trade-off, right? So what is the... How... When you're making the trade-off, what side do you land on? The situation would be, the one you're referring to would be, you're, you've got two centre-backs or two defenders retreating, defending a counter-attack. There's three attacking players or maybe four attacking players. The ball's central, so the ball's being, which is important, the ball's being carried by a central player. Um, imagine you've now got just, just three players. So you've got a central player running with the ball. You've got two wide players. Mo uh, historically, I think a lot of teams have, and again, I would, I would have would have and still do this myself. So I don't, I don't see it as a, as a major issue, but would stand um, narrow and perhaps show the ball, block them, block the centre of the ball, block the centre of the goal, and show the ball outside. Once the ball then gets played outside, then you defend that, which would be obviously a cutback or a cross or a shot, depending on where the wire player is. Um, I've start, so the, the danger with that, I think, is you open up that second phase, which is quite a dangerous moment because once the ball then goes wide, you've now got two players defending a cutback of which... You can't see the the, deep, the furthest man who's making a run from the back post. You've got to defend the space in front of the goal, allowing a cutback, or you jump out and defend the cutback, and then you allow the space in front of the goal with the cross ball across the front. Um, and you might then have runners joining the attack. Obviously, you might have retreating defenders as well, but you might have runners joining the attack as well. Um, obviously, the the, the, pro, the the pros of that are you stop them having a shot from distance. You defend the centre of the goal. You you essentially elongate the attack um, to allow your defenders to recover. So I don't I don't think there's an awful lot with it. Just one other way of looking at it might be having your centre backs st stand wider when they're retreating and forcing the play inside. So I think the benefit of that could be you isolate the player with the ball in the middle by isolating that player in the player in the middle. You invite them to having a shot so as they take a touch forwards when the ball's just about to be touched from their foot, that's when you can close in a bit. And as they get nearer to the, to the edge of the box, you don't want them shooting, depending on the, again, depending on the profile of the player, you probably don't want them shooting um, anywhere near the D. So as the play, player gets, approaches you find the final third and the box, you squeeze in a bit more and then you close off the options for him to pass 
pass wider than you because the space is then getting smaller. And hopefully you can isolate that player, you can force them into a long distance shot. Um, and the, so the trade-off would be, what, what would be better? Would you prefer them to have a, a shot from 25 yards or would you prefer them to pass on the outside of you for a cutback? Again, it depends on the, what your team's like or what the profile of the player's like, but it could be a, a preferable option in that, in that, in that situation. Because again, there's trade-offs. If, if they, they, you could be in a situation where they pass inside you, in between the two centre-backs, and one of the players on the outside runs in behind and receives the ball. You could not quite block the player on your far shoulder with your body shape, because the idea is you're showing inside, but you're blocking him out with, like I said before, your cover shadow, and you play to their back foot, and then they can drive you, and then you're, now you have to turn your whole body around, which would be slower, and they can attack from there. So there are always trade-offs. Um, we actually had a bit of work done with us at, as a CPD last year at Palace um, around facing inside or facing outside in this situation, and it, actually, it was more about the fullback facing inside, and it was just interesting conversations came up and different people are different there's, there's, there's so many experienced um, coaches at Palace and ex-players at Palace so it's an incredible environment for me to to learn in um, and to be around um, so many experienced coaches and players and it's just and, and these sorts of conversations arise regularly it's a really positive healthy environment to, to um, develop as a coach and, and the conversation came up around the, the doing this as a fullback so it was it was it was kind of suggested the fullback um, facing inside. If the ball goes in between you by facing inside, you can actually turn around quicker than if you're facing outside. Slower to turn around and then retreat and follow the runner. Same same in this situation. It may be quicker even if you are standing wide and you're showing inside to turn around and run and follow the run if if the player's on your far shoulder. Obviously, there 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 are. The, conversations came up which I think both sides of the argument are really valid and really interesting in terms of well if you're facing uh, inside you're allowing that space in between you you're then allowing a big space for the ball to go into and you're not forcing the players the play away from goal which I think is definitely um, definitely true so again I think that the what I'd summarize would be it's just, just trade-offs right I think there's it's your your style of play is important what feels comfortable to you what feels comfortable to your players is massive um where your players are able to learn and to take on and and how you can minimize risk or maximize um or maximize ad advantageous situations and then and then you and your team got to decide what feels most comfortable but it's just it's just it's just options and possibilities yeah so <clears throat> i think what what you've alluded to there regarding it being appropriate for players is probably the biggest one for me um i think that just trying to think if if i was Man City, I might be more inclined to let them shoot from that central area in a 3v2. There's two reasons for that. The first one is I think Edison isn't bad from longer range shots. He's pretty good from distance in terms of being able to save that. What he struggled with a little bit more recently is coming out at players' feet and rushing out too far and getting ball slid behind him. Look at the goals they can see against Tottenham. Um, there's a couple of examples of that. I mean, he's still not bad at it, but that's something, an area that he could probably develop on. So I would be more inclined to show inside and go, OK, we're going to back the keeper to make a save or go central. Our defenders can go and do that. If I had Wan-Bissaka, 
it as a fullback, I'd probably be inclined to go let him try and go one v one with you because he's a very good one v one defender. Mm. Then that one you might go wide and go, okay, we're we're backing you in a one v one to get something on it to get a block shot, yeah, play wide, whatever that is, delay enough to get recoveries in. So I think. A lot of these things, it does probably come down to the profile of the player that you have, but also the profile of going up against. So if we've got Harry Kane Central and Sissoko running left wing, I'm giving it to Sissoko. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a really good clip of Van Dyke doing that last year, I think last year against Tottenham, where mm-hmm. it was Don and Sissoko in a 2v1 against him. Mm-hmm. And he basically went to Sissoko, have a shot on your left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that clip, yeah. He was like, go on, have a shot on your left, because I think that um, my percentages are higher with that than if you give it to Son. Mm. So I think it you can go down to real detail in terms of, you know, if this player gets it, do this, if this player gets to do that. But I think in terms of principles for your team, I think sometimes it, it is kind of what you've got as a team and as a thing to say, well, this is how we're going to defend with this goalie because of X, Y, Z. Or in this situation on the right-hand side, because Aaron's very good in his 1v1. So we're going to show it outside and show it show it there. And you're mm. going to go deal with that and we'll, we'll deal with the secondary examples uh, mm. after that. I think I think with that, um, I think I think there's a few things there, which is, I think you're totally right on, the, on what you said there. I completely agree. The profile of the player is massive. Just quickly, uh, something which I think came up in the again the Leeds game the other day was they were attacking. I think it might be four v two, and Bamford ran through the the ball was central and Bamford was central and he ran through the middle of both defenders. And by doing that, he narrowed them off because they then the one who's facing the ball stays in line with the ball. The other one follows the run. So by narrowing the two players off, then you then can pass on the outside of of the one that's moved and then the player on the right has maybe got a free shot now. And that was an interesting thing. I think Bamford did that totally unselfishly. And again, it looked very much that that was planned. And that was, that was worked on, I should say. Uh, and he yeah, made a run through the middle and then it's just interesting how that closes too often. Again, it might be a way of, well, well they're going to start, they're going to defend wide. And then you, like you said, again, before to me, maybe off camera it was, game of chess then, if they're going to then defend wide, well then we're going to go, we're going to run in between you both and we're going to make you narrow up and then we're going to play on the outside of you. Um, maybe back in terms of the, the players, I think that there's like there's probably two ways of doing it, right? There's probably, you believe in something massively and it's it, it's in line with your club philosophy and it's in line with the other coaches, the other coaches and maybe, uh, sorry, obviously in my role as an assistant coach, I, I'm guided massively by my head coach and we work together in, in a sort of in a team um so we'd conversations if i hadn't had an idea obviously i'd run it by the head coach and then we'd go go off that i would never just go and go okay we're now going to start doing that because that's that's not a good team dynamic and that's not how you, you're never going to develop players that way so in my situation if i if, if i said okay I, I think this works really well or my head coach said to me josh i think this works really well what do you think discuss it i think if you both think that it, it works and you're both really keen on, on going with it then it's then how much can we convince the players um, that this is the right thing to do? Um, I think if I think if that's if, if it's really important to you and you both coaches agree on it and you both think it's a really vital element of the game and really going to develop your team, but most importantly the players um, and it's in line with the club philosophy and the player philosophy, then 
can we convince the players it's the right thing to do and ultimately they're the ones who are doing it on the pitch and they have, they have to want to do it and they have to, they have to see the benefit in doing it. Um, if it's a, the, other, the other side of the coin probably is, well, here's an idea, here's, a, here's, here's an option, here's what we think would be good in this situation. Uh, look, the one, one option is this, one option is this, explore the two um, and whatever one you feel more comfortable doing, then, then, then go for that one. And that's not to say you're, you're giving up control or you're giving up um, complete autonomy to the players, but you're giving them an element of ownership, an element of, of liberty and creativity. And from there, you'd have to assume at some point it's not going to work. And then you have an interesting conversation where you go, well, you're going to carry on doing this way or you're going to go to another way. And then the, the player has a, has, a, has a moment where they go, okay, maybe I'll try to do this, start doing this way. And then they can come to a decision themselves of how they want to, how they want to progress. I think it's, off, it's allowing our players to have the tools to explore and probe, um, I think, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail. And then hopefully at some point succeed with it. But it, again, again, it depends on how wedded you are to the idea and how wedded you are to the concept. If you're going to go, oh, this, this, is a, this is the way we want to do it. And you're going to, going to carry on doing this because this is the best thing for you there's obviously a massive gray area in between but those would probably be be the two ways so uh, when you, of approaching obviously you're trying to convince the, the, the guys or kids or whoever it is to kind of use these techniques um how important is it for them to be able to see it at the top level so how important are those clips that you're going away and getting and saying we want you to give this a go here are some of the reasons why. Here's an example to kind of almost immediately get by and to say, well, there's players at the very top level that are doing this, so it's something to explore. Yeah, I think you, the use of pro clips is 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 really valuable. Um, and there's loads of things here which are really interesting. I think one is I don't know how many young players watch 90 minutes of a match on a weekend or on a weekday and watch more than one game or more than two games like we coaches would do. I really don't know how, how common that is now. I think in terms of um, the way we're so wedded to our phones these days and the way young people are now on Twitter, on TikTok, on YouTube, where videos are quick and short videos, Instagram, it's quick, it's 30 seconds, it's no more than that, otherwise you're bored. And therefore, the, the adolescent brain is developing along those lines so we need to cater to that and we need to we need to educate and and um and engage the players in order to be better learners when we can but also provide like you said clips to go this is a five second clip of this working and this is exactly what i mean and the, the, the beauty of, of working with these players is a lot of them have been in the system since they were seven eight years old so you can say something to them and you can explain something to them and they get it straight away. Um, and whether that's a practice design or whether that's a body shape or the reason for doing something is, is, is bang, it's immediate. It's, yeah, I get it. And then it's a chance to, to, to have a go in. And if, if they're not quite getting it, then you go, do you remember that chat about that? Oh yeah, yeah. And if they don't, they'll ask you. So that's, that's also good. But I think the beauty of it is the short clip and the really the, the, the game understanding and the, the capacity capacity to take that on so quickly means that you can they can they can in theory learn learn, learn a lot really really fast in terms of how useful it is to see clips and pro clips 
massive. Like I said, I don't think they're watching that many games. I think get the, in terms of learning and be able to analyze the game, they're obviously good at. But whether they can watch a whole game and have not only the patience but maybe the time and maybe the resources to do that, and then um, whether we'd be able to go, you know, clip out all the moments that this thing is happening. That's that's quite I think quite an elevated thing to do. So us providing that is really important. The head of, head of analysis at the club, um, who uh, also works as a coach, and I in my age group, which is which is again fantastic um, for myself and for the players to learn from and to have that the, the facilities there and the the exposure there to use analysis in the best possible way for the players for their learning, uh, how they can resource it, how they can access it. So we use Huddle um, as an analysis tool where our games are filmed and then we can then go on to so the players and clip out some moments, five good moments, five areas of development, um, post them to our share them with us, can do annotations on them, circles, arrows, little notes, little clips, little timestamps. And then we can also watch the game, click things out and share it with the players. So there's loads of engagement around that whilst we're working, doing analysis remotely, obviously ideal, ideal situation in the classroom and you're going over bits on the screen, but at the minute we can't do that, obviously. So there are loads of possibilities to do that. And then, and then, you know, even players can come to training before training. I can go, did, did you see the clip that we did? Um, myself or the head coach will say, poor player, did you see this clip? Here's my iPad, here's my phone, have a look at this. Go over with them, maybe maybe on, on pitch side um, for 30 seconds before training. And then just it just it just reinforces that me the message that we're trying to get across. Um, or it might be like you said, you go, I saw this clip the other day, here's Tiedemann's doing this thing I showed you about, and here's this. And then it's... You can you can get it across whether then that go that directly transfers into into um, getting it or just unconscious consciousness having it straight away. Then that's a different story. That's that's a different process. Well, that's that's diff different. You measure that in a different yardstick. But the, the the way we try and get there is is using those methods. So I've got two questions off the back of that. The first one is, what is the reasoning for having an analyst come and coach with you guys? And how does that work in a collaborative sense? And then the second question is, um, obviously, we talk about the attention span um, becoming shorter because of, like you said, Instagram, all that type of stuff it is flick through or um, all that type of stuff. In terms of process for you, when you're watching a game of football to try and discuss a topic, do you just watch that individual player for 90 minutes or do you just watch the game and then a theme comes out and then you kind of go back and forth? What would the process be? Say, for example, Tillemans, you wanted to look at the way he moved in order to receive uh, from lateral passes and stuff. Would you go and see, want to do that before he played and then you'd watch that game specifically for that reason? Or would you just watch the game and as you're going along, maybe jot a few things down of bits of areas that you saw that were good. Um, yeah, so so I'll answer that question first. Um, I think, so the way I tend to do it would be I'd, I'd watch a game when something interesting happens that I, I think I can share the detail behind that or or have a, and have a look at and try and get my head around the detail behind it and then have a go at sharing it. I'll just write down on my phone just the timestamp of the game, just just thirty minutes or whatever. Write it down on my phone, and then I'll download the game and clip it, and then um, 
then I'll, I'll have a look at what, 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 what was I looking at in this moment? Oh yeah, I've got a little note here. I was looking at no touch turn. I was looking at building up with the back three, wherever it might be. And then I'll go and look at that. I won't necessarily go into the game prior and I'm going to look at this today because I think that will maybe limit, it might, it might, it might happen twice in the first seven, eight minutes and then you, and then you can look at something else. So I think definitely something that I've, been able to do more since being educated at Palace and speaking to coaches and having CPDs would be looking at the technical element of the game in isolation of the tactical element of the game. So not just looking at the structure of how, the, how a team are building up or pressing or how or how they're attacking, whatever it might be, and really just trying to get my head around that and look at, again, just trying to work out what they're doing and, and expecting to miss out on tons of stuff and not get anywhere near tons of stuff, but just trying to maybe go, okay, this is happening one or two times and this may be what they're trying to do. Not doing that for a game, but just look, just look at the technical elements of it. So the technical elements of a, of a certain touch, a certain pass, why a pass, why a move broke down or had success based on the technical steps, three or four steps behind that. Heading technique, clearance, clearance technique, blocking technique, whatever, it, whatever we might be looking at in the week at Palace or now during this period, whatever it might be, um, I mean, my head was. In, I mean, is interesting me. Look at that. Look at that game or that half. Just from a technical perspective, um, I've yet to been able to do both at the same time. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think doing both at the same time would be pretty difficult because um, you're looking at the overall positions of the players. I think that means you can't quite look at what they're doing with their feet or with their hips or with their body or with their arms, um, which you need to be able to look at to look at technical to technical detail. I think so. So yeah, that that hopefully like, what was remember what your first question was. So in terms of oh, what, about the that... coach, yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, yeah. I mean, again, I don't know the exact ins and outs of reasoning behind that. That's probably a question for um, people uh, higher up in the club than myself. But in terms of um, the benefit of it, um, it's I think it's really great for the players to have. I always think it's great to, for the players to have a few different voices. Um, another pair of eyes to see something uh, different, different styles. All I think if there's many coaches you can have with different styles, different ways of engaging um, is always helpful. Um, and and I think it's also like, like I said, it's great for to have an just an extra person, myself and head coach, can bounce off and get that more analytical perspective, that more that that side of it where we go, okay, well. Uh, one example would be he works with the so he works with the eighteens and is day to day. So he goes, oh well, we're doing we're doing this with the eighteens, or we're doing this pattern with the eighteens, we're doing this throwing pattern with the eighteens. Uh, let's give it a go here. Yeah, thanks, that's fantastic. Let's let's give that a go. Can we share the videos with the players? Yeah, you, yeah, you can. Here's some here's the patterns we're trying to work on. Uh, share them with the players, and then we can work on them. And maybe the session, if he's if he's not with us every session in the week, if he's with that session, he's with us. We we do that stuff in that session because you're getting information um, that's get some real consistency then through the academy from the 18s, 16s, 15s um, and trying to kind of mirror or or work off or be influenced by certain things that they're doing. Um, and also it's really, it's really great to have that insight. So I think um, you've got so, like, oh, my head coach has played over 600 um professional games obviously wealth of experience there giving these players the, I've been there done it this is this is my advice and they've also got Dougie coming in saying 
you know, this is the messaging we're giving to the 18s, the ones who are doing it, um, are having loads of success doing it because they're doing it in this way, they're analyzing the games in this way, they're getting their clicks in on time and they're they're gonna have they're having loads of success and they're really playing well. So it's a direct um a direct uh reference point that we want you to be doing your clips, we want you to be analyzing the game in a certain way, we want you to be honing these techniques because the players who are currently getting paid to play football at this club are doing those things. Um, and I think it's a great way of, it's, a, it's, it's powerful for the players that, it definitely is powerful. Does, um, does he ever challenge you on kind of some of the stuff that you're doing and going from an analytical point of view? I disagree. Yeah, we, we argue all the time. We're arguing, honestly, 24-7. He, he always goes, yeah, let's get the tactics board out and look at that, which I love. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm joking. We, we have, we, I think it's great to be challenged. And the best thing about working in, in an elite environment is being challenged. If you say something, you need to be able to back it up with um, evidence or with with why it might work, why it not work, why it, why it might not work. I also think it's really important to be flexible and to be um, to be able to have a conversation and see both sides of it um, and see it sometimes it might work and sometimes it might not work and, and look at it from different perspectives. That's how, you have, that's how you have really positive conversations. And if you can do that in-game and you can adapt and flex the things that are happening in-game, I think that's that's one of the most exciting bits of the job. That's one of the most, that's one of the funnest bits of the job and that's one of the most rewarding bits of the job. Um, but, but um, no, we have, we have yeah, re really good conversations. All three of us have really good conversations. And, and in fact, all the coaches in the academy have conversations around, and there's always a tactics board line around where you go, let's look at it on the board and let's speak about it there. And, what do you think? And yeah, good point. When have you seen it done? I think that's 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 powerful. Yeah, it sounds like obviously you've got a, a real positive environment there. Obviously, I, I mentioned to you when we first spoke that I knew Coops from my A license, and he, he seemed like a real good good character. Yeah. Like you know, with people like him around, and yeah, Coops is ledge. I've learned a lot lots from him. Yeah, real, real good guy. And I think that um, that environment obviously transmits kind of to the players when they see that there's that good relationship where everyone's striving to be better. You can, the players feel that and kind of have that vibe as well. So I guess kind of looking towards Palace, what would a Palace team look like? What would a Palace player look like? What's the vision for the academy in terms of if, if I were to come and watch from your under nines through to your under 18s and stuff on a weekend, what would I expect to see as like the Crystal Palace way, if you like? I would say, I would say that the, I think, I think, look, I think with these, with these, with these things and with these questions, I think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting uh, approach. I, I do think that a lot of, a lot of clubs that I hear of, there's quite there's similarities across the board, right? I think a lot of clubs, the similarities, you want to create the most effective player. And there's there's quite a lot of similarities in the way you want to go about that. So the reason I said that is I don't want to be here and, and acting as if we've got the gold magic ingredient or the golden ingredient. I think every, every club is doing fantastic things and creating great players and also really good people. I think that's a massive part of it. You want to create really good people because a lot of them won't be footballers and they need to be able to use the experience to benefit them in their later life. But I think going back on that, what, what we look at and what we really want is to have players that are exciting and have flair and are creative and are positive and are able to, to have that slight off the cuff, 
slight um, bit of bit of exciting in, in, in ingeniousness where you know that's very that's very bespoke of the area of players that love playing football. Uh, I know there's been a lot of a lot spoken about. I know as they grew up elsewhere, but um, playing in cages, playing uh, the, the small portion of of the country that's still able to play maybe in the streets and allowing that to flourish in the academy is massive. Um, you've also got then the side of being able to temper that and being able to to control that when it when you go through the age groups and you've got those players that are unbelievable 1v1 or unbelievable 1v2 and they've got, got levels of creativity that, or levels of creativity and levels of confidence and levels of, um, of, of, of ingenuity that you, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to create in an academy, but you can only enhance and you can only facilitate. Um, you've also got then the, the, the other side of where you need to kind of limit that, not limit in a negative way, but you can't have 11 players doing that um, once you get to youth development phase, because it's just not, it's not, you're not going to be one creating a, a wider variety of player you're not going to be able to control matches and control possession and and um, be a team that can move succinctly from having the ball to attacking and and can maintain the ball and there's no and there's nothing on. So you do need you need a variety of players and we are we starting starting to create more players now and look at creating more players that um, manage the ball in a, in a kind of maybe more uh, in a more not calmer but. Um, Different, different rhythms, I think, is, is what we're trying to now also also develop. I mean, again, it's only my third season, so I'm going off it from a quite a new pair of eyes, quite a new perspective. But I think players that can play with different rhythms and different tempos is a, is a massive one. Um, can you maintain when you need to maintain? Can you have the right body shape to to penetrate when you can penetrate? Um, can you keep the ball and control the game without just keeping the ball? So how how do you how do you manipulate the other team on how do you make the most space possible without just turning into a passing drill or onto a possession practice, which ultimately will end up with it becoming frantic? How can you keep that controlled and contained, and and then how can you then use your typically Crystal Palace players um, to to attack in the final third and be aggressive and be brave and be and be and 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 be creative with the ball and do things that you're there on the sideline. Oh, wow, what 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 did he just do with the ball? Which genuinely, um, one of the, one of the great things about working next to Palace is the game doesn't go by or session doesn't go by where you literally look at your colleague and go, oh my god, what did he just do? And it's and it's like that moment where you're like, that's unbelievable. And you, and and that's, that's that as you know yourself working in the game. That's 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 literally what you what you get out of bed for. So in terms of the facilitation, I think this is a really interesting topic point. Um, how do you go about facilitating players to still have that cage culture, that cage mentality, which I, I didn't grow up with it, but I've subsequently learned about it and think it's brilliant. I think that culture is really good in terms of the way it can produce players and produce good people and the way that it can challenge people to improve and stuff. How do you facilitate that kind of um, 1v1 skillful, competitive nature in an academy where you're going to 
as you've kind of alluded to there, want a little bit more structure at points. How do you go about blending those two? I think probably it's probably two ways. I think one would just be again nothing nothing in that enlightening. But I'd say first one would be decision making is just everything in football, absolutely everything. If you cannot make the decision at the right moment, then you're probably not going to have a career. Um, in fact, you're not. You're definitely not going to have a career. So you need to be able to make the right decision with the ball at the right moment. And if you are able to to really um, win that one versus one battle with the fullback or with the centre-back or with the centre midfield, whatever it might be, but you aren't able to turn that into a good decision to help the rest of the team, then this is, is, is really no good. It's, it's actually no point in being able to do all that because... I'm not saying whether you can do that at 12, 30, 40. I'm not saying an age cap on this right now. Um, but I'm saying if you're not unable to, if, if you're not unable to kind of filter that into a really uh, important and decisive decision, then that's going to be of no use to, to the people, your coaches, and when you're not going to give yourself a chance of getting a scholar and then going beyond. So decision-making element would be, would be huge. Um, so do you guys do a lot of like 1v1 based stuff? Because it looks like a lot of the players that have come through um, kind of your setup and whatnot in recent years have been very good 1v1, be it defensively or attacking-wise. Is that a lot of the stuff or is that, again, alluding back to that kind of cage culture? Um, we, I don't think we, I mean, in my phase, on the uh, youth development phase, we do... We still do some, but we do less than you probably do in the foundation phase. Um, you have to, again, a foundation phase might be in a better, coaches will be in a better position to answer that than I would be. But we we probably go along more the lines of structuring that which which uh, which we have, which we have and which have come through the academy, structuring that a bit more and, and getting to that decision making piece around when 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 and where when's the right moment to offload. What are your other responsibilities around the team in and out of possession? Um, what are the good positions to be in? What are the good body shapes to take up in order to really accentuate your, your capacity to then go and be unbelievable one versus one or be able to be really effective in the final third? So we're probably going down it, going looking at it from that route. Obviously, you want to continue doing one versus one, two versus twos, um, little technical practices like that um, as much as as much as you can. But we wouldn't do an awful lot of that in the week um, uh, just because we're trying to make it more, you know, trying to really focus on that collaborative team approach, which they, they at this stage, they're stuck, they, they really need a lot more of. And what would your working week look like? So if we talk about a working week, roughly, what would you do in it? What sessions you do? Is there a curriculum topic for that week or is it geared towards a game or a weekend? What does that look like in general? Yeah, so we have six um, six weekly weekly topics. Um, basically, the th three phases in a, in possession and three phases out of possession. So, uh, build, control, and create, create and finish, and then high pressing, mid block, low block, and then you've got transitions worked in within that. Uh, we train four times a week, and then we have a match on a Sunday. So, um, we we build it through the week. Uh, we tend to have um, a technical element involved in every session. Um, we tend to then have 
uh, work work on the topic with a, with a maybe possession game or four v four game or, or whatever it may be. And as we get in, as we get later into the week, we have a unit some unit work on a Thursday where we me and my head coach and um, the third, the uh, an analyst coach who's with us would would split groups and take a unit each and do some more individualized practices. Um, um, yes, Saturday mornings we we do it's, it's an it's we build it around um, around a lot of player ownership work. So fifteen minutes of uh, there are like the overlapping technical topics or te technical focuses, which they will work on themselves, and then we'll do something related to preparing for the game the next day. So we'll work on that the phase. Um, we're in that week. We will do it specifically to how we want to play tomorrow. If we know something about how the other team are going to play, we might work off that, but under 15s. One, the res again, this is probably a whole podcast in itself, but the result, the performance, what's more important? Probably neither are more important, but we're not just doing it to win. We're doing it to develop the players. Obviously, we do also want to do as well as we can in the match for numerous reasons. But um, And also, under 15, teams can change, personnel can change, you know, players playing up, players playing down, trialists. So, it's not totally worth looking at how the other team are going to play. That said, if you've got if you played in two weeks prior, like we play Charlton quite regularly, we know they're going to play. They know we're going to play. You can set up in a certain way and and adapt to that. So that's what we tend to do on a Saturday morning. So, uh, two questions off this first one: How much benefit have you seen from the IDP stuff and? the work with them coaching one another how did you get to that stage because I know that when we spoke before we were talking about the England rugby team and particularly both coming in that and having um, players coaching one another in sessions which I think is a great idea and then the the second one in terms of on match days when we're talking about maybe changing tactics and stuff is that something that the players encourage to either come up with strategies or adapt the strategies during the games or is that led by you guys still? Um, so in terms of the IDP stuff, I think it's, it's an ongoing conversation we have around um, IDPs, you know, and we have it with a lot with our, when when guys from the FA come down and speak to us, tutors have really interesting conversations around kind of what is an IDP? Do we need to have four or five IDPs? Do we need to have one IDP that maybe, um, and uh, I don't know if, um, uh, so Paul Holder is one of our FA tutors, who's fantastic. And uh, he, he comes in and speaks to us about IDPs. He did, he did a few, he did a Zoom call with us, uh, a, a webinar over lockdown about IDPs and kind of his belief is, which, which I think's got, got loads of, uh, loads of interesting points and, 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 uh, and things you can build off is, got fit under 15 player do you need to have an i do you need to have five idps or four idps when maybe you could have your one idp which is um which is receive on your back foot or and then from that other idps will then develop so body shape to receive on your back foot you've got to have the right body shape you've got to scan you've got to have a positive first touch you've got a clean first touch you've got to be at the right angle blah 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 you've got maybe five or six seven things that are coming off that but they're just implicit rather than explicit, so the player can just focus on one thing. Um, at, at the minute, our, our lads, which I think works well for them, have got four or five. Uh, where I think I think I think it's four. In fact, where three we 
we put together and then one they they come with um one or two they come with themselves so the way the uh, the saturday mornings have worked i think it's been a bit of a process i think we started doing it about two years ago um and obviously the first time you do it players sort of look at you like you've got you've got mannequins here you've got boards you've got cones you've got flat markers you've got bibs off you go you've got 15 minutes and you've got 12 going to the goalkeeper can i use you on do shooting and so then you need to it's a slow process and you manage that and i think it's a really rewarding process because you start with that you you, you go through that really like scrappy kind of um that scrappy moment where players don't really know what to say and don't don't lead each other and don't feel confident doing it and don't have the ideas and you kind of go through that that difficult period and when you when when you when you when you get through that the light in the tunnel is you've got players who are now who are now making their own little practices who are who are coaching each other technically coaching each other who are now understanding their own idp a lot a lot better their own needs a lot, lot better because they're they're teaching it to someone else therefore they understand it a lot about and you've also now the idea is you're also now creating players that have a voice and are leaders on the pitch because they're getting more of a voice than they potentially would do within the session um following on to your next question on a match day to be honest with you on a match day we would tend to lead more of the tactical dialogue um we obviously ask the players what do you think about the game what do we need more of what do we need less of etc but we would rarely and that might be something to look at but we would rarely go uh how are that team playing what do we need to do coach it and do it i do think that at this stage it's very hard that's quite it's quite a difficult thing for players to do uh you know if we if our job is to see the whole pitch and see everything and we're not playing to ask the players to do that is possibly quite a hard thing to do and, and my, I, I don't know how necessarily how much worth that would have i think i think there's benefit to it but i wonder as you go older is that a transfer is as you get older is that a transferable skill is that a skill that's um appreciated uh and is needed um or is it more important just to be able to look at your own game or you the, the way the unit's playing or the way you're linking with other players other units in certain phases and be able to alter those little moments rather than bigger picture stuff then probably a bit of an open question there but um but no on a match day we tend to go okay this is what we need to do these are the spaces these are the spaces they're attacking these are the spaces we need to attack this is how we need to press this is how but the players do adapt to it really well um players adapt to it really well and they can again like i said they can take take things on really well so so yeah no i think it's a it's a constantly um evolving question and something that's interesting how much ownership are we given to players how much information is given and what's the line between them feeling supported and you know us for lack of a better term earning our money yeah. <laughs> and also them you know being able to challenge themselves and all that type of stuff and i float between the two my my biggest concern i have at the moment is that we go one of two ways either it's always coach led and they never get any opportunities to you know explore themselves be it in session or in games 
or we go the other way where it's completely player led majority of the time and like i see a lot of people that kind of leave and do it during a period say nothing and then during the period break they talk to them for like five minutes straight expect them to be able to take all that information and then come back on the way i liken it is it's particularly the younger age groups it's like asking them to read harry potter uh, but they've never read like a basic book so you're trying to get mm. them to understand the game at the end without ever kind of going through to them you wouldn't just say to no. they're reading harry potter um yeah just work out the words as you go along mm. yeah. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, but I don't know <laughs> and it and as so how yeah, yeah. about Lord Voldemort. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I think for me, that's a big thing at the minute is it, there has to be some structure to help them understand as they go through the age group. I'm not saying it has to be all coach-led, but I think that there has to be points where we step in and say, you know what, we're actually going to help you with this area. Totally. Like... I think it needs to be a, a method that is used and is justifiable in the right moments and the right opportunities. I think like anything that is, that is, um, that's like what, otherwise the syllabuses wouldn't exist in schools. Like you just said, that's what, that's, that's how, that's how we, um, that's how to engage with the players. Uh, you know, I don't mean, I don't mean the coaching syllabus. I mean, to rephrase that, I mean, um, to a joined up way of thinking, uh, a, a methodical approach where we're going to do something and this is the way we're going to do it and this is the reason behind it and this is when we're going to do it. But our overall way of delivering is, um, is just a bit more holistic and a bit more, we are the coaches and we're going to help you develop. But in the right occasions, like you said, there's going to be opportunities to go, this is going to be player-led or this is going to be really player-impacted. I know there's I know there's some great stuff goes on at the um, youth development phase, age groups and slightly above at England where they do a lot of tactical planning themselves, which I'm sure is brilliant. And I'm also, I would also imagine that wouldn't be everything they do. There's probably a time and a place and a justifiable period in which that happens. Um, otherwise, like you said, your players aren't, aren't going to be uh, are just kind of be given all the tools um, without knowing how to use them. And there's no real point in, in that. So, yeah. yeah my, I think... my concern comes is when they might not necessarily have the tools. If you're asking them to come up, I, I get the, the counter argument to this is people are going to say, yeah, but if you let them get on with it, they're going to come up with some solutions that you might not have thought of. I 100% agree with that. There are going to be occasions that my problem is, if you kept say say for example this the four position, if you just keep just telling the four to get on the ball and he loses it every time, but you just keep telling him to get on it, what happens if he never figures out that it's just because his body shapes off slightly? Mm. It feels like you're kind of letting the child down because you're never supporting them. I appreciate there'd be a point where you say to them, Okay, we'll go and explore that. What different ways can you receive to try and retain the ball what, what different ways can you receive under pressure to try and get yourself out of it but if it gets to the stage where you've been going at this session after session match after match week after week and you never actually go in 
okay, have you thought about this? I feel like you're not actually, you're not developing them in the long term. All you're essentially doing is, is not providing them with enough support in a really high challenging mm. situation. Yeah, I agree. You're not, you're not coaching them, are you? If you're allowing the player just to make the same mistake over and over again without helping them learn why. I think, I think again, it's like that, that kind of trade-off point. Say you're doing a finishing practice with the player and you're doing uh, you're working off mannequins and they're take, doing a certain type of finish and they're missing the target. You can go, well, the reason this is happening is, is this, by the way. Show them the way why it's happening. The other option is doing this. They're then going to find some way of adapting that. And there are loads of times where players come up and do things that I would have, would have not expected in that situation to work or would have not done myself or would have not I've not seen done myself, but it still works and it still um, doesn't mean it's right, but it doesn't mean it's wrong either. It means that there's an opportunity for the player to explore that and go, this is the reason it worked. This is the reason. I think if you can give the reason behind something, if you can if you can see the technical detail of, or the tactical detail of why it worked, why it didn't work, and then now you can explore, that. that's everything, right? I think if, if, it's, if it's this didn't work, um, but keep, but keep giving it a go. It's like, well, how do I get better at that? It's like, it's like you and me would be the same. If, if I was learning a language and I didn't know why I was getting the, the language wrong, then no good, is it? Yeah, it, well, yeah. It's like having a password to your phone, isn't it? You put the password in, mm. it just comes up with a big X and says, no, it's not yeah. right. Yeah. Like, why isn't it right? Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The example you're giving there, I think, is a good one. It might just be a little point and go, but at the minute, you're not set when you're going to strike it can you try and set exactly. yourself better you're not telling them specifically what to do in terms of body shape or anything like that all you're saying is can you set yourself so that when you strike it it will be a bit cleaner 100 but like, I, I do again i do think like you said before we have to coach we're coaches we need to coach if you're not coaching then what you then what you're doing so you need to be you need to coach develop the player give them your expertise and your advice work off their imagination and their ideas as well to de- to get that to get that real great combination of them developing themselves and you developing them, and then also throwing throwing elements of ownership there and, and and allow players to have a voice and to be able to to be confident having a voice and it's a difficult one under fifteen under sixteen under fourteen it's an age it's an age group where we've all been there you you're embarrassed you're uncomfortable in your own skin and you can't help that and the adolescent brain is developing. Our rate quicker than I, I, again. I don't know the exact details on it, but we did. We had a CPD done with us at Palace, and it's like the adolescent brain is going through more changes than at any other period in your life, and it's more unstable. It's, it's more, I think more so even in in boys than girls, um, and less developed than bo- in boys than is in girls. I think girls develop quicker than boys, um, and you know things become embarrassment and anger and stress very very quickly. So you know they don't really want to say uh like even organize the, the rest of the defenders or they don't want to communicate with anything before because it's embarrassing to talk when you're that age sometimes you just want to get your head down you just got a new haircut you feel a bit embarrassed about like you just got a new tracks has anyone noticed it um you're coming in with your airpods and you want to just get in and get out um and then when you're on the pitch you express yourself but you don't really say a lot and i think that is that's that's um 
symptomatic of these of especially think 15s but 14s 15s 16s i think when they get to 16s they definitely become a bit more confident and scared and see the need for it a bit more as well whereas at 15 they're still like remembering what was like a 13 and 14 um where they're still getting used to the youth, youth development phase but it's our job to show them to push them into that direction and really as a footballer you do um you grow up quickly don't you and you do become an adult quicker than other um young people of your age around the country so you it's important that you get there but it you, you really don't feel comfortable speaking you don't feel comfortable having those conversations so we need to be able to facilitate and and create an environment in which they can get better in those in those skills because it's not just a skill with their feet that they're going to need to be good at or fast and strong where they need to be good communicators and you need to be good socially they're going to need to have good awareness so we need we we're there to coach and train that as well we, we, we've got to do everything and it's, it's a good life skill being able to communicate effectively with people completely yeah honest feedback to what your feelings are about them or take critique from what their feelings are about you that's a really important life skill that you know, if you can get in those IDP style works, it's only going to benefit them as they go through the age groups as a footballer, but as they go through the age groups, whatever they do, if they become an accountant or if they... Totally, yeah. 100%. So listen, last question for me, and this is something that I ask um, everyone, which is who's the best player um, you've worked with or against and why, or who's the best coach that you've worked with or against and why? You can answer either one of those. Hmm. Really good question. You know, it's, pro it's probably I, I probably I, I couldn't pinpoint one coach. I've worked with so many good coaches and, and against so many good coaches. Um, player wise, so so yeah, I, I wouldn't want to highlight a single one, um, especially the ones like I said, the ones that I'm working with the Palace right now. But in terms of players, again, there's probably probably. I probably wouldn't be in a position where I had to put a name on it um, because of the age they're at, but I would just fall back. It's a really boring answer, but I just fall back on the thing that I said previously, which is I'm very grateful to be in a to be in a job where I'm around young players every day, and you see them do something with the football, and you you, you genuinely look over it, and you you just know that moment where you just catch someone else's eye, and you know that even if a coach is standing on the other side of the pitch, you can look over at the exact moment and you look at each other and just raise your eyebrows or be like, wow. That, that that just happened so um that's that's probably the be best answer i can give you on that one i think there's i wouldn't want to highlight say a player name right now because i've worked mainly in the youth development phase i've worked a bit in foundation phase and a, a bit higher but not nothing nothing um that that solid so i uh i wouldn't want to put a name on it but just to say that you know you're around players all the time that um you're like wow that that, that was pretty special Perfect. Listen, Josh, I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for coming on. I look forward to seeing more of the uh, the content on, on Twitter and stuff um, and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.